0: The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Welcome to episode number 160 of the Civil Engineering Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in work and life. In this episode, I will be talking to Jeff Peacock, who is the president and CEO at Parametrics about his career journey of becoming a CEO and leading a multidisciplinary firm. And really, in this episode, Jeff spent a lot of time talking about how Parametrics truly engages all of its employees. It was really, really refreshing to hear Jeff talk about these things, because honestly, after having the conversation with him, If I was advising a civil engineer who asked me what company they should work at, I would tell them to work at a company that does the types of things that Jeff talks about in this interview. So I'm excited to have you hear him explain some of these initiatives that they've undertaken because they are exciting and not too many companies. I shouldn't say not too many companies, but there are a lot of companies not doing this. And I think it could provide some good insights for you as a company leader or someone looking to maybe figure out the best company for you. I'm your host of the podcast, Anthony Fasano. I am a licensed professional engineer who practiced as a civil engineer, but eventually decided I wanted to focus more on inspiring engineers rather than doing the engineering myself. So since then, I've written a book entitled Engineering Your Own Success and have traveled the world helping engineers. This episode is being published just before the end of the year in 2020, and I know it's been very interesting year to say the least. I don't want to say it's been a completely a bad year. I don't like using the terms good or bad. I think things are how you interpret them to be. And there are are good things that come out of every situation, but there were certainly many challenges that had to be faced this year. And I also think that there'll be long-term benefits that do come out of this. So however this year has treated you, your family, your company, your career... I hope that you took benefit out of it and that you'll be able to utilize those benefits moving forward. And if we can help you at EMI, we would love to do that. We continue to develop content focused on helping engineers become better managers and leaders. And we are going to be doing some complimentary Q&A sessions throughout the year to help you get all of your career questions answered. So if you're on our mailing list, you will be able to get access to those and if you're not you can get on the mailing list by going to engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. We're also upgrading our very popular engineering management accelerator people skills course. In fact, we're renaming it and we're adding in some more support benefits to it like Q&A calls, a chat network where you can chat with our instructors. All that information is going to be coming soon on the podcast and through our mailing list and that's going to launch in in late February. We're really excited about the new course that we've developed for you, and we hope to continue to serve civil engineering professionals through all of our content and our courses. So I wish you a happy new year to you, your family, your colleagues, and I hope that the podcast can continue to help you grow in 2021 and beyond. Now I'd like to introduce our guest for this show, Jeff Peacock. Jeff joined Parametrics in 1990 as a transportation staff engineer in 2008, he became president and chief executive officer. Prior to that, he served as the executive vice president for infrastructure environmental services, focusing on business development and market expansion for the transportation, water, environmental, and community building business lines. So you can just hear there he's got a lot of experience in different avenues. Jeff's technical background is in the planning, environmental compliance, design, and construction management of complex infrastructure projects, serving as principal in charge or as project manager, Jeff has been privileged to be involved with some of the largest and most complex infrastructure projects in the Northwest, including projects with capital costs as large as $4 billion. And really, we didn't even get into that that much, honestly. We talked a lot about employee development, team interaction, which is why I was really excited to just be having this conversation with Jeff, and I'm really excited to share it with you. One thing I will say is in listening back to the interview, we did note that Jeff's audio was a little bit lower in some spots and maybe there was an echo at times. And I think our audio production team did a really good job to be able to to save the interview because I certainly did not want to have to scrap the interview and and try to start over. There's just so much value there. So I hope that it works out and your ears adjust to it. I think that they will. But if you would like a transcript of it as well, we can provide a written transcript as well. You can just visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org and hit the contact us button and we can get that to you as well. So with that, let's dive into our civil engineering conversation of the week with Jeff Peacock. Civil Engineering Podcast.
1: Civil Engineering Podcast.
0: All right, now I'd like to welcome our guest onto the podcast for today. Jeff Peacock is the president and chief executive officer of Parametrics. Jeff, welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Thank you, Anthony. It's great to be here. So Jeff, before we get going... Can you just tell our listeners a little bit about parametrics, you know, what services you offer and then a little bit about your role there.
1: Parametrics is a predominantly in the Western U S little over 500 people. Uh, now we've grown quite a bit through the last year. Fortunately, we uh, practice in four basic business lines, including transportation, uh, water and wastewater, environmental planning and compliance and community building. And we, uh, hide ourselves or our interdisciplinary approach to integrating those for our our clients' projects. 85% of our work is public sector. About 15% obviously is uh, is private. So we're very oriented on infrastructure projects across that realm.
0: Something that's really important to note is that Parametrics is an ESOP. Employee Stock Ownership Plan operates under that. And I know that that was a a big decision and it's a big part of you know who the company is at this point. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, well, first of all, maybe you could just give an overview of what that is if listeners aren't aware of that. And then you could talk a little bit about the decision to become an ESOP.
1: In a nutshell, uh, an employee stock ownership program is something that's a very uh, highly scrutinized by the IRS for some reasons that'll become obvious as we talk a little bit more, I think. We are 100% ESOP, which means that uh, everybody in the company has a stake in the game. It is uh, a cultural driver for us because we believe from the bottom of our heart that everybody as an owner should know everything about the company and what makes the business work effectively because that improves it, improves our operations and improves our approach with clients as well. What that means financially, uh, ESOPs were originally designed to be a wealth building program for individuals and spread across those who are contributing to the success of the company. And we believe that everybody contributes to the success of the company. When we uh, finish our year, we typically, like a lot of companies, divide our earnings into, we do into three different buckets. One would be retained earnings for future growth uh, and management of the company, a bonus program, and then an ESOP bucket. And that money is distributed equally across the company. And when I say equally, it's by a formula that is based on compensation. But everybody receives the same percentage contribution based on their annual salary. Essentially, the receptionist at the front desk earns a stake in the company at the same rate as I do. I earn a little bit more because my compensation is a little bit more than the receptionist at the front desk. The company decided to make that transition back in the early 90s. It actually was one of the key reasons I came to Parametrics. They had not yet made that transition, but I was assured that they were in process and it was imminent. They started down that path in 1990 with the plan for a 10 year buyout of the five owners at the time. And uh, actually, because the, the performance went so well, the buyout
0: was complete in a six year period. I really like the esop because like you said you know everybody is in the game they have skin in the game they're interested in the growth of the company it's directly related to their own success which i think is important i think in a world where one of the challenges today is you know engagement with employees and keeping everyone involved and excited about what they're doing because there's so many distractions out there you know an esop is a really great way to do that and depending on the individual Obviously, someone who's motivated, maybe entrepreneurial, that could be something that would be really exciting to them because they kind of feel like they do have that stake in the company. And I know that sometimes people are entrepreneurial, engineers are entrepreneurial, but they don't really want to take the risks of maybe starting their own business. So working in an ESOP can provide a really good way to feel like, you know, I mean, you are an owner essentially, so it can be a powerful way. So I'm happy to hear you kind of explain that because I know that a lot of our listeners- have expressed interest to me in terms of maybe going to a company that operates as an ESOP. And the way that you broke it down there was very helpful. So, switching gears for a little bit here, I want to talk a little bit about your experience. You worked at the Washington Department of Transportation for the first period of your career. And then you decided to go with Parametrics, of course, a consulting firm. And we get a lot of questions from listeners about this transition. You know, there's always a question public, private, you know, what are some of the benefits of each? And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the benefits of your experience there that you've realized in the private consulting world at Parametrics.
1: That's multi-pronged. I really enjoyed my time working in the public sector. I, I started with the DOT right out of college, and uh, the training was exceptional. Over the period of time that I was there, I learned a lot, I grew a lot, and I developed a lot of relationships with people that I worked hand-in-hand with, so to speak. I was constantly exposed to really interesting project work, so that was a real positive. On the downside, by the nature of the beast, so to speak, I was constrained with some sideboards about what level of involvement I could have with those projects. So that was somewhat frustrating. An opportunity arose where uh, a person that had formerly reported to me at the DOT had gone to work for parametrics. She was a young uh, engineer a couple of years out of college. And at the time, the DOT was talking about a reduction in force, which is entirely based on tenure, not performance from merit. So when they approached me, the parametrics approached me about a job, I said, I'm not interested, but I have this right young lady that might be very interested. And uh, long story short, she joined parametrics. And within a couple of months, she was back with her supervisor, taking me to lunch and recruiting. At first, I did it as a, a gesture because of my relationship with her. But after, I think it was three different lunches, I thought, it's time to make a change. This sounds exciting to me, and uh I'll just take a step off the cliff and hope there's water at the bottom when I get there. And I never look back. I have absolutely enjoyed all the opportunities that I've had at Parametrics. We are a company that gives people a lot of latitude, and one of the first things you'll often hear as a new employee is, what are you passionate about? What do you want to do? Because we want to align your passions with the work. I was able to get involved in all different kinds of different types of projects, as well as the different facets of the project, from conceptual planning and financing of projects all the way through construction projects. And that was very gratifying. I also was able to expand beyond uh, highway work, into a wide variety of different infrastructure projects and environmental work too, which I found very gratifying as well.
0: Just from listening to some of your answers here, what it sounds like in terms of parametrics, in terms of the culture, it's very focused on the employee, which is a great thing, being that if you were talking to a civil engineering professional and maybe advising them on companies to look at, I think a couple of things you might say to them is, you know, if there's an ESOP available where you could have ownership in the company, it'd be a great thing if the company gave you ability to work on the projects that you like to work on or that you're interested in, it would be a great thing. and it sounds like that those are some of kind of the key fundamentals of you know working at Parametrics, which is great. Again, this is a, a world right now where employee engagement is really important. I think the firms that can engage people like that, when you let someone work on something that they're passionate about, that they like, maybe their strengths lie there. It's only better for all parties involved really, because they're going to be into it, excited about it, and probably do really great work. So it's great to hear you say that. The other question I had like kind of as a follow-up to that is, you know, I worked in private consulting when I was working as a civil engineer and I worked with a lot of agencies and I could imagine that having, you know, kind of sat on that side of the fence and then coming over and having to work on projects in terms of your ability to communicate with not just DOT, but other agencies and professionals in those agencies, it must have been really helpful for you.
1: It certainly was from a couple of different angles, Anthony. One being that I had been there and done that. So there's a level of credibility that comes with that when you're talking to clients, both with different DOTs as well as other types of clients as well, that I could relate to the things they're going through as a public sector employee and and the processes that they have to understand and follow. And at the same time, paint a picture of what could be as a part of projects. And most of our work involved not only Pulling together a consensus, I'll use that word somewhat loosely, but a consensus of quite often multiple different agencies and stakeholders, uh, not the least of which are public, because these large infrastructure projects affect a lot of people. Being able to credibly uh, talk and help people understand what complicated civil engineering work is to lay people, as well as understand the technical details, because that's where the background is, has been probably one of the biggest keys
0: to my success. Yeah, I know. And you always hear people say any walk of life when you're interacting with someone, if you can put yourself in their shoes, it becomes easier, but that's often easier said than done unless you've actually been in their shoes. Like in your case, working with some of these professionals at the agency. So that I would imagine how you know, valuable that could be. Parametrics is a multi-discipline firm. And for those civil engineering professionals listening that maybe don't work in a multidiscipline firm, or maybe there's an owner of a small civil firm listening and considering expanding his or her services for the firm, what would you say are some of the benefits of having you know multiple disciplines under one roof as a civil engineering company?
1: Well, similar to some of the other answers, there's a couple of different ways to, to think about it. We find that the diversity of thinking that comes from having different backgrounds and trainings to projects is extremely valuable, especially in the early phases of projects We're in the forming and norming, uh, brainstorming portions of the projects in terms of what is this going to look like? What are the needs we're trying to accomplish? And if you get a lot of like-minded people in the room with a similar background, they tend to come up with the same type of solution. But when you get different backgrounds and perspectives in the room at the table in the early phases of the projects, oftentimes they show, can help shape the project is going to develop into a much better project for clients and for the public. That multidisciplined approach is much easier when everybody's kind of aligned about why they're at the table or there may or may not be restrained because of budgetary matters to bring in, you could say, well, let's bring in a sub to do that. That often happens, of course. But when it's all under the, the same roof, it's a lot easier because you The level of trust and collaboration you have with somebody who you work with on a routine basis is just different than it is when you're a subconsultant at the table with somebody else. You've got a a different master, so to speak. That's one real real value in it, for sure. With respect to actually doing accomplishing the technical work, I'll use the uh, examples of the highway project. For example, when there's environmental planners at the table, when you're doing route studies, rather than the, the, a lot of firms that would do the engineering work, here's our alignment options, tell us what we have to do to change it for the environmental folks. The environmental folks being at the beginning of a project really helped shape what those alignments look like. Very a uh, collaborative uh, exchange of information and thoughts and ideas. And similarly on utilities, if we bring up some of our water people into the project, the complexity of what we're impacting on the utility side is better understood by the highway engineers when they're at the table together. And again, that's something that can be accomplished through sub-consultant relationships. But when everybody's aligned on a, on a purpose of what we're doing, not only on the project, but as a business, it makes that a lot easier. And we're a very purpose-driven company. You mentioned earlier, or raised a question earlier about the, the pitch, if you will, to people about an ESOP and coming to a company or asking them what their passions are, we almost invariably, when we're recruiting, start with our purpose. Why are we in business? And, and again, based on that fundamental belief that if you can align somebody's passions with the greatest needs in the world, that's where the magic happens. And, and because people are attracted to our purpose as a company, I think that's where the conversation starts on the recruiting and to use it. A fishing or if you will, setting the hook happens to be the, the ESOP benefits of the side
0: of that. Yeah, I do think there are a lot of benefits to a multidisciplinary firm, of course. A couple that you mentioned there, I worked for a multidisciplinary firm myself, and very often we would get the survey portion of a project because we had a survey department. And because of that, we would kind of have one foot in the door, and it would make it a lot easier to get some of the civil and environmental services While there are challenges as well, of course, like one of the challenges that we had was a lot of the divisions failed to cross market the other services. That was something, though, that we were able to provide training on, and it was a good way to get people interconnected and doing training and talking about your service to other offices. And that eventually took off. So I do think that there are a lot of benefits to it, and it can really promote a lot of interactive work, like you said, and kind of diverse perspectives and thoughts across the company. So it's good to hear you reinforce that for sure. One of your service lines, Jeff, is your community building service line, which is very unique. I haven't heard of something like that before. Can you talk about this service line, how it came about?
1: We're very proud of that. It is a significant portion of our company uh, these days. The uh, original concept for the idea probably goes back 15 years now. And we were increasingly doing planning work for agencies Long-range planning, or comprehensive planning, or area-wide planning for, for different agencies. So we we're ringing in more planners, working with the engineers, which is a great mixture. And we decided this is here's a business here that we should get up and running. And uh, the first reaction was, well, it's community development. That's what all of our clients call it. And we thought that doesn't sound very cool. <laughs> we wanted to be inspiring to people, so we got in a room for over a couple of. Uh, Use the word pops and, and, uh, and talked about where we want to take this business. Is is it something that really can grow into something special? Uh, one person suggested the, the name community building and uh, it just stuck immediately when they said that that stuck. And subsequently, what that has evolved towards is in addition to planning type services that I previously mentioned, we also have our all of our owner's rep group within that that discipline practice and, and Sometimes people ask, what does the owner's rep mean? The easiest way to describe that is a quick example. Uh, We do a lot of work with school districts. And uh, school districts' mission and purpose is education. It's not to build capital projects. So they'll go out, they've clearly got needs, and they'll get a, a capital bond passed. They need some support to do that, to understand what their ask is. But then once they get a big capital bond, they need help in how to deliver projects. So they will hire us or or firms like us to represent them and maybe do some conceptual planning and design and then hire an architect engineer outside of parametrics to come in. And we will manage that as the owner's rep for them all the way through construction. That is a very fast growing part of our business. And and we're we're broadening that out to many other uh, client sectors beyond education as well. And so our construction services group falls into that, and our, our, all of our survey work falls into community building as well.
0: It's interesting, and it's it's something different. It's, I think it's certainly something innovative, but I think it's really important. In the built environment today, there are so many challenges that, like the example you gave was perfect. The school system, you know, their job is to educate, not to figure out how to build buildings, where to put them, with the right locations, et cetera. So, Taking that approach, that community building approach is a great, great way. And and again, just another way to, you know, engage, I think, employees. I mean, I think when you talk to employees about doing work in this field, we need to remember that it's not just about, you know, go do this drawing or these specifications. Here's why we're doing it. And, you know, making that connection to the benefits that kids are going to be learning in a new building because of the work that we're doing And, and making those types of connections can really keep people kind of inspired and motivated for sure. You had a big opportunity in your career where you were able to start a new company-wide practice for parametrics. Take us through that part of your career, kind of how it came about, and how you decided that you wanted to take on that opportunity, and of course, how it panned out.
1: Well, I didn't know what I didn't know, fortunately, so that helped a lot. But uh, when I was recruited into parametrics, there were two people with the transportation engineering background, and only one of them was doing anything related to transportation. And they were a signal designer. I was brought in because at the time, in the early 90s, Solid Waste was the driver of the company. That was overwhelmingly the market we were in driving the company. And they needed some help on developing some roadways, not only within landfills, but access, improving access to the landfills. So they came and said, we would like you to work on this. And we've also got some other ideas we'd like to talk to you about to see how it goes. So I started working on a big landfill project that evolved into development of a, an intermodal facility with a rail platform and about a seven mile new alignment road up to a, a landfill. At the same time, I was pulled into a project. I didn't understand it at the time, but it was deep red ink <laughs> uh, with overruns. And it was a project on a main street in a small community where they were replacing sewers and we were hired to replace the sewers. So the sewer guys had it all figured out, but they they really were struggling with the roadway side of it, which, of course, that's what my background was. And where I came and looked at it, I uh, realized what you're doing is a roadway project that happens to have a sewer line under it. So I took that on and it, it kind of thumped my chest, but it was pretty easy once you had that approach, right? The combination of those two projects that uh, caught some attention and I was given more opportunities and, and asked, well, where do you think we could take this? and so they gave me the rope and off that break we were pretty successful and, and won a lot of work uh, both on the planning side and on the design side through the years and, and now transportation is about 65 percent of the company everything from conceptual planning all the way to some huge huge infrastructure projects we are very uh, fortunate to be able to compete successfully with some of the, the largest companies in, the, in north america and we also team with them uh, both as a Them as a sub to us in occasions, and us as a sub to them as critical partners. But it was that early, early on, didn't know what I didn't know. And because that, I was willing to go out and do things that other people kind of captured the rest about because it it sounded intimidating or scary. And I just went and did it and had fun with it.
0: Yeah, that's great because I was going to follow up with you on because I know if just thinking from an An engineer's perspective that if that kind of opportunity was presented to them, you know, I think on the surface, it sounds like a wonderful opportunity to try to grow something new for your company. But at the same time, there's a lot of responsibility, of course, that comes along with that, you know, meaning the technical side of it, growing that division in terms of business development and other things like that. So parametrics, because of their philosophy, you know, gave you that leash and said, you know, take a shot at this. We we kind of believe in you. You want to give it a go. And I think you need that. Push from your company and their support to be able to do something like that because I would imagine that it's a great opportunity. And I think if you can get that opportunity in your career, you should definitely jump on it. At the same time, like anything else, it'll be—it's it's certainly not going to be easy. I think there's some interesting sports
1: course, there too. I played sports growing up and played basketball into college, and, and sometimes I get put in the game not because I was a great player by any stretch of the imagination, but they, I would be assigned to one of the best players on the other team. And I always went in with the attitude, they're they're better than me. So if I risk stealing the ball and they go around me and score a, a basket, that's what everybody expects. So I was willing to take those risks. And lo and behold, I'd come up with the ball every now and then. There's really nothing to lose when you're first starting there. And, and maybe you don't understand the risks as well as you do as uh, as time goes on and you get a little more gray here. But uh, that, those early years were really a lot of that. What, what do I have to lose? it doesn't go anywhere. Everybody expected that anyway. So let's give it all I got.
0: That's an important note there in that it's really a lot about mindset and some of these challenges in your career and the way that you approach them and the way that you think about it, which can set you up for success. Your example there, right? If you really have nothing to lose and, you know, the company doesn't have this service right now. So you know the worst things that happen is it doesn't go great. We still don't have the service, but if it does go well, as you just mentioned, it's now 65% of the company's you know, services and revenue. So it's a really good way to look at it. I want to ask you a little bit about when you became the, the CEO, but before I do that, one other thing I want to mention or I want to bring up here, because it's kind of how you and I got connected. We got connected from Sam Lytle and Parametrics acquired CivilFX FX. Sam's 3D visualization company. And I know from speaking with you too offline that parametrics really tries to be innovative and kind of think ahead of the curve. And I was wondering if you can just talk a little bit about that. I mean, I think that that's something that really companies should be doing right now is thinking ahead. You know, there's lots of challenges in the world, things that we have to deal with, like for example, the pandemic where all these companies, you know, had to become remote. And so it's important to think ahead and prepare. And I'm wondering if you can just maybe talk through like, you know, the idea of adding that component parametrics how that came about
1: The visualization component that sam's company uh, brought to parametrics was uh almost a no-brainer when the opportunity came up to talk to sam about that and the reason anthony is because we've over the last two to three years have been uh, talking across the company about the future of the profession and that to, to just Briefly go into that. We came up with this idea about three years ago as part of a strategic plan update. And we thought, let's get 20 thought leaders in the company together to talk about where's the profession going? Maybe we should invite two or three clients in to talk about it. And I felt like a kid at the edge of a dry grass field with a, a match that dropped. Everybody wanted to get involved with it, including the clients. The clients came back and said, well, can I bring four or five people? Within a, literally about four weeks, it became clear that we were on to something here. And so we ended up the first session, we invited uh, quite a number of clients and we had to limit the the, the size of the audience because of the space to a 100. But there was still so much demand, we decided to let's live stream it to the entire company and have them invite clients in. So it ended up being live streamed to several hundred people from there. And it just was a lot of fun. and. Clients talked about where do they see the profession five to 10 years from now and what are they doing to prepare for it. We brought in Autodesk to come in and talk about where they see the future of design 10 years from now. And that just had all of the audience on the edge of their chairs because everybody's trying to figure out how do I deliver my project in two weeks and to be able to lift up and talk about where are things going with artificial intelligence, with robotics, what smart smart utilities going to look like was really inspiring and laid a, a direction for us in terms of how we should be preparing and thinking about things. And communication of what we do is always important. And the visualization aspect of what Sam's group was doing. We were doing some of that already internally, but they took us to a whole nother level because they were we had never even thought of this. We're going about it from 3D design like engineers do. We were uh, experimenting with uh, augmented reality. And then here SAMS group was doing the same thing, but using gaming engine technology that would have never even occurred to us. So as soon as we saw it, we said, we got to pull this in and then we can start training them on some of the engineering components of the augmented and virtual reality, as well as uh, incorporate the visualization techniques that they're doing through the, using the gaming engine platforms. And it's really gone, gone quite well for us.
0: Sam's a great guy. He was on episode 35 of the Civil Engineering Podcast. For those of you listening, if you want to learn a little bit about his journey from being a civil engineer into 3D visualization. But it's great to hear you talk about that, Jeff. And I really like the whole idea of forward thinking into the future of the profession. I think that that's something that is ahead of the game, but it's really what we have to think about because projects are going to continue to get delivered differently and there's going to be different challenges The firms that are kind of innovative and out ahead of that, I think are going to be the firms that'll be leading us through these major infrastructure projects that'll continue to to come about in the future. Jeff, you became the CEO of Parametrics in 2008, just ahead of the big economic depression. Firstly, can you just talk about the process of becoming a CEO, if it's something that you had as a goal of yours or how it came about? And then maybe talk a little bit about how you navigated that first portion of your office as CEO during that those hard economic times?
1: I certainly didn't come to Parametrics with that as a goal in mind. In fact, it never even occurred to me. My career path at Parametrics went from uh, establishing and managing a small division of transportation engineers to expanding out to overseeing that across the company. And then I was promoted to oversee all infrastructure development activities and, and business development across the company. And at th- that's at the point that I had a lot more exposure to the executive team and became more intrigued about possibilities. The company was started in 1969. When the founder of the company decided to retire in 2000, I put my name in the hat. And um, I didn't know whether I had a chance or not, but I thought, <laughs> you know, if I don't try to steal the ball, nobody expects me to do it anyway. So if I don't succeed at it, no, nothing lost. Well, I didn't succeed at it and another person was selected and that that turned out to be a blessing for the company and for me as well. I frankly wasn't ready for that. But when the new CEO, the second CEO started, he pulled me in as a right hand person and I was able to learn a lot about not only the business, but more about how to manage something of that scale. So when that individual announced his retirement in early 2008, I put my hat in the ring again, and um, the board went through a pretty extensive process, and, and I ended up being the person they selected. The intent was to have a a year long transition, and uh, after about eight months, the CEO said, i I think you're ready. I want to retire." So, okay, let me add it. So that happened in October of 2008. Literally two weeks to the day after Lehman Brothers collapsed, which for the older folks, they probably recognize what that means. But the younger ones, uh, Lehman Brothers is kind of considered the first domino of all of the uh, financial problems of 2008 that caused the Great Recession. Uh, so we started into that and again, didn't know what I didn't know. The recession really wasn't affecting us. So that was naive. It just didn't affect us immediately because we had a number of very large public sector projects, that the cycle on those is much longer, that in economic cycle on those is much longer, because it takes years to get the financing in place. And once it's in place, it takes years for that to change. But by uh, early 2010, it was very apparent that all of our work was on the but a a lot of our work was drying up. And the company contracted uh, probably about 30%. That was very, very difficult. And I, I learned a lot from that, a very difficult period that I, I hope never gets repeated or any successor that I have never has to do or something like that again. But we weathered that, a very conservative company. And when the economy was improving a lot, we decided that it's, it's time to be a little bit more aggressive. And this was back in about 2015. We were doing pretty good. We were going okay. But we decided to put a new strategic plan together that uh, said, let's get more aggressive. And uh, so things have gone really well for us since 2015 as a result of that. But that first couple of years was a tough period, uh, especially because I, I didn't think it was going to be. And I probably didn't react to the situation as quickly in hindsight as we should have.
0: You were starting out and you got one big curveball right when you started that you had to work through. but. Beyond that, it sounds like everything has gone really great. And it's been exciting hearing about some of these different things that you do in terms of engaging your staff and, and continuing to grow at Parametrics, which is really, really exciting. So what we're going to do now is we're going to take a break and we're going to come back in just a minute. We're going to put Jeff on the civil engineering hot seat and end this one off with some career related questions. We'll be right back. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering
1: Podcast.
0: We're back with Jeff Peacock, president and CEO of Parametrics. And Jeff, it's time to go on the civil engineering hot seat. You ready for this? Airway. <laughs> All right. First question. Are there any specific rituals that you practice every day, Jeff? For example, do you have a specific morning routine or a lunchtime routine or just anything that you do consistently on a daily basis that contributes to your success? I
1: have a number of routines. My wife would tell you I have a lot more than I probably would confess to. But uh, I am a, an early riser, a morning person, if you will. So I'm usually up pretty early in the morning. And uh, back before COVID, when everybody started working remotely, I was usually in the office by 6.30 in the morning. And what I found from that is that gave me an hour to an hour and a half of really quiet time to do some long-term thinking, to do some planning for the next couple of days, what was in front of me, and also just some time to absorb what's going on in the world around me as well. So I've maintained that. Uh, it's quite different working from home. It's still a ritual that I adhere to. I uh, would like to say that I, I go downstairs and work out every day. I don't quite get to that, but I, I try to stay disciplined about that because I find that important. Especially, I'm, I'm sure a lot of the audience might un- uh, be able to relate to this back-to-back syndrome of Teams meetings and Zoom meetings. And you almost feel guilty if you get away away from you your desk to move the bathroom anymore because everybody wants the time. I've learned over the last few months how to structure time in my day to and protect that. I found that to be really critical. I literally block out my calendar every Thursday. And uh, oftentimes I'll get pulled into important meetings that are unavoidable. But uh, that routine is invaluable for my mental well-being as well as an ability to step back and think about some longer term, bigger picture issues that uh, require quiet time thinking rather than reacting to the other routine that I would say has helped me in life overall is I consider myself a very spiritual person. I'm not religious and to the point that I, I'm a strong churchgoer, but there is rarely a, a, an evening that goes by that I don't count my blessings with the Lord. And that's
0: something that's important to me as well routines and structure is really important. I mean, that's why we asked this question because I feel like a lot of people that I've talked to that have found success is because they're able to do something consistently over time, right? You're not going to do something one day and then that's going to carry you for your career. You've got to kind of keep at it. I share the same sentiments with the morning routine I have myself. And it's funny because I find that sometimes in that first hour and a half or so, at the end of the day, I get more work done in that hour and a half than I end up getting for the rest of the day some days. But also too, like as a leader in the company, and I think you'd probably agree with this is that the rest of the day, a lot of that time has to be for interaction and for guidance and support, you know, and people need to get that from you. And that's part of your job as a leader. So you still have to do some of those things that you need, you know, your own headspace for, you need the quiet time. So, you know, being able to structure is really, really important. I'm glad that you you said that and you really reinforce that. All right, Jeff, next question. What is one book that you might recommend to an engineer or just one book in general that you found helpful for yourself and whether it's for personal or professional development purposes?
1: That's an interesting question. And uh, I've been asked that before. And my first uh, inclination is to go to the the leadership books that I've read through the years. But I think a book that I would recommend to anybody, and if you're an engineer, great, or if you're in another profession, it's, it's equally good because it has had a, a strong influence on me is John Wooden on leadership. John Wooden, for those who, again, might be younger, was uh, the coach of the UCLA Bruin basketball team for many years. And what he accomplished in that position is orders of magnitude beyond what anybody else has accomplished. Not because he was a genius, a tactical coach. He was obviously very good to have accomplished what he did there He focused on leadership and what it takes to pull a team of people together to get the most effective work out of a team and how to help them believe in their own potential to accomplish things that they couldn't have thought maybe possible before. And so it's a great book. It's a great book and it's applicable to any profession.
0: Yeah, he is great. And you know, when someone is that successful in any field, taking a good look at what they do, I think is a, is a good thing to do because you don't have the record that he had by just showing up, and you know you have to be consistent again. and And I've read some books too by some of his players, like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, just about the relationship with him, which also goes to speak to his uh, values and you know how important. I mean, they said in the book one of the things that they say that I really like is that he started off every training camp by starting with the very, very fundamental basics of, you know, tying your shoes and how to pull up your socks and everything. And and some college players would think that was a funny thing, but for him, it was all about everybody needs to start with the fundamentals and improve from there. So that's a great recommendation. And John Wooden is a great person, I think, to research and look into for sure. Next one, thinking back on your managers of the past. If you're thinking about some of your favorite managers or your favorite manager, and you don't need to name names, but if you just think about them, what are some characteristics of your favorite managers that stood out that made them your favorite? Why were they your favorite?
1: Through the years, I would have to say my favorite is the uh, individual, the office manager that I reported to when I first came to Parametrics. He had actually retired from URS and his son worked for the company for Parametrics. And after 18 months in retirement, we were looking to, for somebody to lead a, an office And his son said, would you be interested in doing this for a few years to help us get established? So he came back out of retirement, brought the experience of a very large company to, at the time, what was a 200-person company. I had the the honor of of working directly with him. And uh, he probably was the one that instilled the feeling that I I shouldn't be afraid to take risks and um, really gave me a lot of support in, in thinking about he believed I had a lot of potential that he could help mentor me with. And that worked out very well. That mentoring and believing in me was just huge. It was kind of like everybody's favorite local type personality. And uh, he would always crack these little jokes and make have a little snicker about it. And that everybody just would light up when he would do that. <laughs> the point of that being uh, you know, also taught me that it's important to have fun in what you're doing as well. Don't get so caught up in the importance of your work that you forget to have fun and we forget why it's uh, what we're here for in the first place.
0: When you believe in someone as a manager, you got to let them know. Like you can't assume that they know that you're thinking that way about them. You know, I think reinforcing that to them and letting them know that you're there to help them, just evidenced by Jeff's answer, it sticks with someone for a very long time and it can have a major impact on their approach and, and the rest of their career. So, for all of you managers out there, Think of those people that you feel like they're your leaders, they're your future leaders. You may be thinking that, but you need to be having those conversations with them, kind of reinforcing it and trying to support them. I think that that's really, really important. All right, Jeff, I've got one final question for you. We call it the civil engineering career elevator advice question. If you were to get into an elevator with a civil engineer and you had about 30 to 40 seconds with him or her, and you had to give him or her career advice in that very short period of time, based on your experience, what would that advice be?
1: Once I understood they were an engineer, I would ask them uh, if they're enjoying what they're doing. Like I said it earlier, that I I truly believe that when somebody's passion meets the world's greatest need, that's where the magic can happen. And what we do is stepping up to some of the world's greatest needs. The ability to uh, help influence how communities look and operate and function effectively to help shape everything about that is really exciting. And a lot of engineers may not appreciate how much influence they have on that. They might look at a specific project with a set of blinders, if you will, to say, how am I going to design this project without thinking about that bigger purpose So, why that particular project is needed? How does it fit into a bigger system? and How is it going to benefit society? The impact engineers have on society is, is underappreciated, in my humble opinion, by most. But it doesn't take very long when somebody asks me, what do you do as an engineer? And I said, well, uh, do you turn on a tap every morning to brush your teeth and do you think about where the water comes from? Or when you flush the toilet at night, do you think about where the water goes? Or when you get in your car to drive to the local store, do you think about who designed that road to make it safe for you. And then people start nodding their head. They, they get it all of a sudden. I would ask something like that to that young engineer. Are you happy what you're doing? Are you following your passions? If you are as an engineer, it's a wonderful place to be.
0: I love that answer, especially, you know, the executive coach in me, which is, you know, not always thinking you have the answer for someone, right? They have the answer themselves. So it's not about, hey, you need to go do this in your career.
1: That's a great way to say it, Anthony. Have the answer yourself.
0: Yeah. It's like, what do you want to do in your career? Do you feel like you're getting the chance to do it? If not, you probably should try to make an effort to be able to do that because if you're doing what you're like, you're going to be much more happier than not. Jeff, I want to thank you for spending some time with us. You're busy. I know you're back-to-back Zoom meetings and team meetings, but you took some time out of your busy schedule to share some of what you've learned over the years with our listeners. And I know it's going to be very well-received and very valuable advice to them. So I want to thank you, Jeff, for taking some time out and um, spending some time with us here on the Civil Engineering Podcast.
1: Thank you, Anthony. It was a pleasure sharing some time with you this morning.
0: I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Jeff Peacock. I really enjoyed it myself and I do really appreciate what Parametrics is doing in terms of engaging their team members. I think asking your employees what kind of projects they like to work on, I'm sorry to say this, but I think it's pretty innovative. Like, I just don't think a lot of companies do it. In fact, from talking to hundreds of engineers on a regular basis, I know a lot of companies don't do that. So if your company does it, kudos to them. And I hope that you'll Appreciate that and really hope to utilize their willingness to help you and push you in the right direction, really to your advantage and try to learn as much as you can about what you like to do in the world of civil engineering. I also want to take a moment here to thank you for, again, sticking with us through this year of 2020, a lot of ups and downs for people throughout the year, but I hope that you can find the positives and everything that happened this year and you can leverage that into 2021. And I hope that we can help you to do that. I just want to mention again that we are upgrading, renaming and relaunching our engineering management accelerator program. It's now going to be called the Engineering Leadership Accelerator People Skills Course. That's going to happen in late February, but I'm going to give you some details right in the new year so you can get on the early bird list as we're going to have limited spots, but essentially we're making it much more of a development program as opposed to training, meaning that there's continuous support. You'll have access to Q&A calls, after the training, for months after the training, so we can really help you not just come to some webinars and learn about how to be a better communicator, but we want to work with you to actually help you implement the skills. Some more information on that coming in early 2021, and please remember you can find the show notes for this episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com. Look for episode number 160. There, you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during the episode. And if you have a chance to go over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review for the podcast, we would really appreciate it. Those reviews help more civil engineering professionals who might need the help to find the podcast. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors. The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.